0: In your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 this morning, I strongly encourage you to turn over there, turn on your device, but we're going to go through a text this morning, and I think it'll really help you to follow along if you're opened up there, okay? Philippians chapter 3. So there was a young man, uh, actually he was an older teenager, and he grew up in an atheist family. His parents did not believe in God, so they never took him to church, but they were nice people, they were good people, so he was a well-behaved young man, and some of his friends invited him to go to church, so he started going to church with his friends, and his parents thought, well, that's not going to bother anything, you know, this is probably good for him socially, it's okay for him to go to church as long as nothing comes from it. And then weeks went on, he was attending church with his friends, and he came home one night and he told his parents, I made a decision at church this evening to be baptized into Christ, to become a Christian. So immediately his mom was alarmed because she thought, that's not who we are as a family. We don't believe in God. And she thought, you're joining some sort of cult. And she said to him, they've brainwashed you. And he said, Mom, if you could see the things that went on inside my brain, you would agree that I needed a good brainwashing. And I think a lot of us could probably agree with that. If you could see what was going on inside my head... We need a little bit of a cleansing, a mind renewal, a liberation from addiction and bad habits and the things that we let our minds dwell on. So this month, we have studied uh, d- several passages from Romans, and we've looked at the mind. And I asked you from the very first day, do you ever think about what you think about? Do you ever think about your thoughts, what your mind dwells on your daydreams, where your mind has a tendency of going to, and Jesus commanded us to love God with all of our minds. The Apostle Paul said we need to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ, so how can our minds become the dwelling place of Christ? That's what we've looked at in the sermon series, and we're going to wrap it up this morning using the book of Philippians. So just a little bit of a Bible quiz first. When you hear uh, the book of Philippians, what's one word that comes to mind? Anybody? Okay, nobody said it, so I'm going to give you the, the first letter. It starts with a J and it ends with a Oi. Can you guess? <laughs> joy, yeah. You read through Philippians, and some of you are Bible students, and you knew that. You just didn't say it. But when you read through Philippians, joy is one of the key words. Your first thought is probably joy. Paul talks about joy or rejoicing over and over. But another key word in Philippians is the mind, or to think, or what you think about. It's in every chapter, in all four chapters in Philippians. Starting in chapter 1, Paul says that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's Philippians one twenty-one. Paul has this one-track mind where his life, his goal, his purpose, his focus is on Christ Jesus. And Philippians chapter 2. Uh, Paul mentions how we need to live in humility and be of the same mind. And then in Philippians 2, and verse 5, he says, Take on the same mind as Christ Jesus. The NIV translate that, the attitude of Christ Jesus. And then in chapter 3, which is where we're going to study from this morning, we're going to study chapter 3, starting in verse 17, all the way through chapter 4 and verse 9. We're going to look at what Paul has to say about the mind, and I'm going to give one last push to take serious what we think about, where our minds go, what we dwell on. So starting in chapter 3 and verse 17, brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. So Paul says, join in imitating me. It's not the first time in one of his letters he says to imitate him. And 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And he's not saying that because he's arrogant, but this is before the New Testament was in print. So these early churches, what they had to live by was either the Hebrew scriptures or the example that they had in the apostles. For the men who had been with Jesus and who were leading their churches, follow their example. And then you skip over to Philippians 4 and verse 9, and he says keep on doing the things that you that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me and the God of peace will be with you. So he makes another appeal, keep doing the things that you've seen me do. Paul saying, I'm an open book. I've lived my life as closely to Christ as possible and you can follow my example. So chapter 3 verse 17, chapter 4 verse 9, that's kind of the brackets for the section we're looking at this morning. So now come back to chapter 3 starting in verse 18. And we're just going to kind of break down. That's why I'm asking you to please follow along because we're going to break down several phrases and words here as we study through this. Verse 18. For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I have often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears. Many people live as enemies of the cross of Christ. We don't know who those people are. Who are the enemies? Well, maybe, because one of the themes in Paul's letters is what some scholars would call the Judaizers. You know, men who were going around teaching that Gentiles who had become Christians needed to be circumcised and obey the the law. Maybe that's what he's referring to as enemies of the cross. Or maybe it's pagans living these wild lifestyles, and he's saying those are enemies of the cross. Maybe it's people that are teaching that Jesus didn't come in the flesh because that was happening or starting to increase in the first century. We don't know who the enemies of the cross of Christ are, but we know that there are some enemies. And Paul said, I've told you about them before, and now I tell you even with tears or with weeping. So in a letter that's filled with joy and rejoice, it's also filled with tears. Verse 19. Verse 19 is kind of heavy. Verse 19 and 20. Their end is destruction. Their God is the belly. And their glory is in their shame. Their minds, their minds are set on earthly things. Their end is their destruction. Their God is their belly. When I was reading this, I thought of that documentary called Super Size Me. Does anybody remember that? This guy went to McDonald's every day for a month straight, and he ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner there. And just to see, I guess, what it would do to his body, I don't really remember what all went on in the documentary, but by the end of that month... He was experiencing some major health problems. You know, but his body started to malfunction because he operated, and this was just an experiment to see what it would be like to just feed yourself full of junk constantly. And if you work at McDonald's or own a McDonald's, I I apologize for calling it junk, but it's got some good food. But eating there every day, three meals a day, it kind of gives us an example of what it looks like, especially us as Americans. The temptation for our God, what we place the highest value in to become um, our appetites, our belly. And he says their end is destruction. Their glory is in their shame. You know, I'm on Twitter, the social media app. And if you scroll through Twitter, you know, that's kind of where I get my news. But there's some people on Twitter that are from my past, from whatever area of life I knew them in and occasionally I'll scroll through and I'll see it'll show me what they've liked or what they've retweeted and sometimes I look at that and I'm just like man you have like two or three sentences to write something out and share a picture and it's just filled with garbage like with filth and I'm looking at that and I'm like this is what people are celebrating and liking and retweeting you know their glory is in their shame their God is their belly their end is destruction and he says their mind is set on earthly things and if we're being honest, including myself, that's kind of a temptation that we all live within. And this is what Paul has been showing us as we read through Romans the last three weeks, that there's this battle going back and forth, and a lot of that takes place in our mind. And he said, the enemies of the cross of Christ, their minds are set on earthly things. In Colossians chapter 3, the very beginning of Colossians 3, Paul says, set your mind on things above, not on things Of the earth. Well, in verse 20 of chapter 3, Philippians, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven. So he's contrasting uh, enemies of the cross of Christ, the cross of Christ whose God is their belly, glory is in their shame, uh, their mind is on earthly things. But he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and it's from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So to understand verse 20, it is helpful to understand a little bit of the history of what's going on. About a hundred years before Paul arrived in Philippi, a great Roman civil war took place there. And from then on out, Philippi became a Roman colony. So the men living and their families living in Philippi were usually ex-military And Philippi was governed by Rome. They gave their allegiance to Caesar, and so it was like a little miniature Rome. So keep that in mind when he says our citizenship is in heaven. You know, Paul was a Roman citizen, and most of the people that lived in Philippi would have been Roman citizens. But so he's kind of doing a little play on words here, and he says our citizenship is of a different kingdom. Not the kingdom of Caesar, not the kingdom of Rome, but the kingdom of heaven. And he said, we are expecting a savior from this kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And those titles that he gives in verse 20, those are Caesar titles. The Roman emperor, they referred to him as savior, they referred to him as a deity, they referred to him as lord and king. So Philippians 3 and verse 20 is very subversive. Paul's saying our citizenship is not Rome. Our allegiance is not Rome. Our allegiance is not Caesar. Our allegiance is to a different kingdom. Our citizenship is in a different kingdom. And our king is our savior, Jesus Christ, not Caesar. Verse 21, he will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of his glory. By the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. To understand verse 21, you have to go back and read Philippians 2, 5 through 11. That's known as the Christ hymn. Jesus, being the very nature of God, humbled himself. And he says our body of humiliation. But then after Jesus was obedient to death on the cross, God glorified him. And someday every knee will bow, every tongue will confess so Verse 21 kind of follows his Christ hymn from chapter 2. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, we see the word therefore. So he's continuing this thought. We kind of divide it up in chapters in our minds, but he's continuing the thought, therefore, all things subject to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. And then in verse 2 and 3, He deals with a few things in-house. He appeals to them to be of one mind. And we're going to skip down to verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. There's a man named N.T. Wright. That's a great New Testament scholar. And he says that verse 4 would be better translated as celebrate. Celebrate in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it. Celebrate. For the pagan cultures that surrounded these cities that Paul was writing to, they knew how to put on a public celebration. They would have festivals and games, and they would celebrate their gods, their deities. They would celebrate Caesar as Lord, and they would put on these huge public celebrations. And so N.T. Wright says this, like Paul is using what they see in their culture, and he's saying, celebrate our Lord, Jesus. Celebrate. Now, if it's rejoice, it's interesting because how can you command an emotion? How can you command someone to be filled with joy and to rejoice? But as followers of Jesus, if we celebrate Jesus, which I think we're doing this morning, it's contagious, and others pick up on that. Celebrate, rejoice in Jesus always. And then in verse 5, he says, Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. You see, for those living in Philippi, for those who had been a part of the Roman army, or the power of Caesar, you know, they were used to domination and force and violence. And he says, this kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. And we don't know if he's near because Paul's referring to his second coming or he's near because his presence is near, but both are true. And then in verse 6, he writes, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now if you notice, I didn't have to look at my Bible when I read that, and I'm not saying that to brag because I have it memorized, and I don't have that verse memorized, Philippians 4, 6, because I've studied all week. I had that memorized because of Ty Ford, and I told him this before uh, worship this morning. About 15 years ago when I worked at Camp Deerun, I served in canteen one session, and Ty decided that we were going to have a memory verse for all the groups that came through, so he picked Philippians 4:6. So every day, four to eight times a day, when the groups would come through, we would meet them, and then we would just have them recite chunks of the verse, so do not be anxious about anything, and then they would repeat, and then we'd go over it and over it, and by the end of the week, I have no idea if the campers actually memorized the verse, but 15 years later, I can still quote it from memory, so I memorized it because we had to go over it so many times, but Paul says do not be anxious about anything, so he mentions this word anxious, so we've looked at the mind, mental health this month. Which, by the way, I don't take mental health lightly, and I don't mean to be insensitive when I say mental health, because I know millions of Americans struggle with mental health, right? and it's pretty common. Everybody's affected by it in some way, and so anxiety is so common in our culture. And along with anxiety is depression and sadness and other, other elements that come from mental health. And so Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. In America, statistics that I have read in the last 15 years, antidepressant prescription use is up 65%. And one out of every nine Americans is on some form of medication to help them with anxiety or with sadness or depression. So it's, it's common and it's on the rise. Right? And it's something that we should consider. Consider what's going on in our minds. Even though it's on the rise, it's not a a new problem to humanity. You know, Paul mentions anxiety, and there's other places where he mentions this. If you look at the Old Testament, if you read 1 Samuel, you'd see Saul and some of his mental issues that he had, his troubled mind. If you read the book of Daniel, and Daniel chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in the world. And in that chapter, I love Daniel chapter 4, says he lost his sanity. He went out and lived in the wilderness and grew his fingernails and his hair out. And his sanity was not restored to him until he turned his life over to the Lord. You read the Psalms and you see the battle back and forth in the Psalms of what life is like when you're filled with joy. Or what life is like when you're filled with anxiety or sadness. And the Psalms are trying to balance faith and mental health issues. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian writer, after he lost his wife, he wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. And In this book, he wrote, mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, but it's more common, and it's also more hard to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. It's easier to say my tooth is aching than to say my heart is broken. And I think a lot of you would probably agree with that. Mental pain, and he wrote this a long time ago, mental pain is very common. But physical pain, it's, I mean, if you break your arm, you can say I'm hurting because, look, my arm's broken. But it's much more difficult to say my heart's broken. I don't know what's wrong with me. Something is going on inside of me that's aching. It's harder to point to that. But it's common, and it's there. And we can't always explain Why we deal with sadness or depression or anxiety, but every human being who ever lives will deal with it at some point. So in Philippians 4, 6, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. And if you stopped right there, I would say that's bad advice. I I can't stand it when people say, just don't worry about it. You know, when people give me that advice, it's like I just want to say, oh, I didn't think about that. Let me just stop all of a sudden. You know, it'd be like if somebody has the flu and you said, you know, just don't have the flu anymore. Just don't do it. That's not great advice. Advice. Jesus, part of his core teachings was do not worry. Paul says do not be anxious, but neither Jesus nor Paul leave it at that. Jesus gives us a whole lifestyle to imitate, and that's how you live a worry-free life. Here Paul says do not be anxious about anything but in everything. And everything that you do, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. I did a sermon series in July on prayer. And I mentioned in that sermon series that in the first century, rabbis taught that God should not be pestered with too many prayers. And then here comes Jesus, and in Luke 11 and Luke 18, Jesus says to be persistent in prayer, to be bold in prayer. So Paul writes, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And then in verse 7, he says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding. What is that? The peace of God, which is beyond human comprehension. You know, for a while after we moved here, uh, we still owned our house in Mount Pleasant. And it was an empty, we, we moved everything out of it. But because we still owned it, I had to take care of it. So occasionally, uh, I, we would go and do yard work and take care of the house and we would just spend the night there. Empty house, no TV, no furniture. We'd bring our air mattresses, uh, we'd bring lawn chairs, and I would bring my lawn mower and my weed eater. And we'd go spend a night there. And those were some of my favorite nights with my kids because we were distraction-free from devices and TVs and things like that, and it wasn't even a temptation. So we would just run around the house, run around the living room. Um, we would play dodgeball until somebody got hit in the face and started crying, and then that was time to go to bed. And it was just a great time with my kids, but I'm always the last one to go to bed in my family, so I would just sit in the living room literally with nothing. And it was dark, and the only thing that was shining through was the street light through the curtains that we had left up. And those were some of my favorite nights because I just sat there alone with God for an hour or two, silence and in prayer. And no matter what was going on, what anxiety I felt or stress that I was feeling, it's like the peace of God, the presence of God has a way of cooling that. But it's hard to cultivate those moments And the busyness of everyday life. And the only reason I was able to do it is because I was basically forced into it. But Paul says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This word, guards, has some military overtones. Remember, he's writing to Philippi, a lot of ex-military there. And so he conjures up this image of a group of soldiers surrounding a treasure chest, guarding it. And you can picture God guarding our hearts and our minds, surrounding us, guarding it. The word heart, the Greek word heart, is this word cardia. And it's a multifaceted term that kind of means your emotions or your will or your soul almost. And your mind or your thoughts, your thought life. So God, with his peace, guards our hearts, our emotions, our thoughts, our will. And then in verse 8, I'm going to pop it up and this is the NIV on here but I'm going to read from the New Revised Standard Version. It says finally beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is dr- whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there's anything if there's any excellence and there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now this is when you talk about the mind or you read a book about the mind, a spiritual book, Philippians 4.8 always comes up because of the way that verse ends. He says, think about these things, or dwell on these things, or some versions say meditate on these things, or fill your thoughts or fill your minds with these things. There's an actor named Anthony Hopkins, famous actor, well-respected in Hollywood, and people that, I guess, have seen his movies respect his, his acting skills. And I read an interview about him, and he said that when he gets a script well before they ever go to production, he reads over it 100 to 200 times. He memorizes all of his parts. He memorizes everybody else's parts. He internalizes the character. He imagines what it's going to be like. He draws little images, you know, on the sides and the margins of the script, So by the time he shows up for production, it's a part of who he is because he has spent so much time with it mentally. And when Paul says, dwell on these things, think on these things, it's with that same passion, that same focus, that same intentionality. Dwell on these things. Think on these things. Let your mind I kind of hover over and be a part of these things. He says, whatever is true. He's borrowing probably from Greek moral philosophers who had similar lists. But Paul takes a list and he kind of makes it his own here. Whatever is true. Well, what's true? It's just, again, think about what you think about. What goes through your mind and how much of it is true? How much of what we dwell on is true? I read some research that said only 8% of what we think about is something that's real and something that's true. 92% of what we worry about, what we think about, is something either we've imagined up, something that we don't know is going to happen, we're just anticipating it's going to happen, or something that's out of our control. So only 8% of what we think about and worry about is real, and 92% is not real. So Paul says dwell on think on that which is true. Satan is the father of lies. And there's always going to be a mental battle going on back and forth. Jesus is truth. So he says whatever is true, whatever is whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, sexually pure, mor- morally pure, whatever is lovely, that word means to call forth love. So when you think about other people, What is lovely? What brings forth love towards that person? Or do you dwell on the negative things about that person? Whatever is commendable, if there's anything that is excellent or anything that's praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Think on these things. There's a psychologist named Archibald Hart, and he wrote a book called Habits of the Minds. And in this book, he said that every single human being is governed by two laws the law of cognition. Which he says means you are what you think. The way that you think, the places your mind goes to, the way you perceive yourself and the way you perceive others, that's how you're going to behave. You are what you think. So if you live in fear in your mind, that will show in how you behave. If you have some confidence, that will show in how you behave. The law of cognition, you are what you think. And the second law is the law of exposure. You are. What you expose your mind to, what you continually expose your mind to, will reveal itself in who you're becoming. And many of us, including myself, try to violate the law of exposure, thinking it will have no impact on us, but the law of cognition, the way that we think, and the law of exposure, what we expose ourselves to, is ultimately who we're becoming and who we are. And Paul says, take these things and dwell on them. Think on these things. Our citizenship is in heaven, right? a different kind of kingdom. So our minds are not set on earthly things, but our mind is on things above, on these good things. Dallas Willard, the late Dallas Willard, wrote that the ultimate freedom we have as human beings is the power to select what we will allow or require our minds to dwell upon. I started this sermon series with a quote from Viktor Frankl, who survived these Nazi concentration camps, and he said essentially the the same thing. Our freedom can be taken away from us, but the ultimate freedom that we have as human beings is what we will choose to dwell upon. God is only a thought away, and Jesus, who set the ultimate example for us, says, love God with all of your being, including your mind. Love God with all of your mind. This morning, if you need to grab a shepherd, you can do that. We'll have shepherds around the building, one up front with me. If you need to come up front, you can do that. This is an opportunity to respond. Tony's going to come back up and lead us in a few more songs, and I want to invite you to stand at this time.